Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Weekend mornings with Glenn Van Zutphen on Money FM 89.3. And welcome if you're just tuning in to uh, Weekend Mornings here on Money FM 89.3. It's 10.34 on your Singapore Sunday morning. Joining us on the line, Professor Ben Horton, who is chair of the Asian School of the Environment at NTU and also the principal investigator at the Earth Observatory. And uh, today we're going to talk about if we can pass the green test in our post-COVID world. Ben, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Ben, talk to us about the, you had an article about this uh, last week. What is the green test as you are proposing it? Well, this is born out of a publication that I recently wrote, and it's talking about how we move beyond the pandemic. So the pandemic offers the opportunity for humankind to hit a, well, I would say a reset button. The chance to change the the way we do things, to create a civilization in which the environmental crisis, and in particular because this is what I research, the climate emergency, are addressed. And quite simply, this talks about a civilization that does not exploit planet Earth for its own exclusive use, but lives in harmony with it. And Ben, as you as you look at that, that's a you know, that's a big order, right? Environmentalists have been trying to push this agenda for many decades now. Is the do you feel like there is the political will? Uh, there's certainly people people are into it, right? We've seen that it's been quieter and air's been cleaner and more animals have been coming around. So we we get that from I think on, on the street level. But do you think that there is leadership you have seen emerge uh, from a political and, and uh, level that could actually make this happen? Well, I think, it, I think it just, there's not a question here. It just has to happen because if we do not pass this climate test, we're going to be faced with increasing catastrophic global changes. You know, the work that we do at the Earth Observatory or the Asian School of the Environment shows that without changing the way we live our lives, without mitigating against the greenhouse gases, we're going to get increases in temperature, Mm. increases in extreme weather, wildfires, floods, sea level rise. We're going to cause large parts of our planet to be uninhabitable. We're going to have ecosystem and biodiversity collapses, food shortages, and we'll just continue to have more and more pandemics pandemics such as COVID will be even more destructible in future years. So we really need to take lessons from the COVID pandemic to tackle the climate change. Yeah, what would be, how do we start that discussion from a policy level, from a government level? I mean, the Paris Accords have have not really proven to, to be effective at all. Of course, the U.S. has dropped its leadership role in that. And, uh, you know, if we don't have the major players on board with this, how do we get it started? How, how, do we, how do we move forward? Well, I think one of the lessons you can learn from the COVID pandemic is that we all have a role to play. Now, climate change and COVID-19 are two very different challenges, but they do have some key things in common. Both are global. Climate change is going to affect every single person on the planet. And COVID was the same. They both don't respect 
national boundary. Mm. And they both require governments to work together to find a solution. We've seen some of the cooperation that is taking place to look for a vaccine. So the global community has also shown with the pandemic that it can act to respond to this crisis. You know, governments, businesses and individuals have all taken measures and changed their responses to the pandemic. So that gives you great hope that the next much larger crisis, in my opinion, climate change can be addressed. We know that if we work together, even small actions, when put together, mm. small actions in COVID, such as physical distancing, can make a huge difference in overcoming the larger challenge of the pandemic. And the same thing we can think about to do with climate change, individual choices on what we eat or what we buy, how efficient we are, can help us overcome the larger challenges for, such as reducing our fossil fuel use. We saw, you know, across Asia you know, that we have some of the biggest plastic, uh, not only producers, but polluters uh, on the planet. Places, you know, Indonesia, of course, China is the production heart of a lot of that. Vietnam, other places like that. How do we change that mindset, that supply chain necessity of plastic packaging, plastic uh, that is used in our everyday lives, single use plastic, especially? How do we get around, for example, if we just start to tackle that? You know, as we look at World Ocean Day coming up tomorrow, and so much of that plastic does end up in our oceans. Well, before COVID-19, there was an emphasis, individuals, corporations, municipalities, and even national governments, to introduce bans on single-use plastics, be mm -hmm. they straws, bags, coffee cups, bottled water, and so on. Mm-hmm. As a result, some companies sort of jumped into the fray, for example, by manufacturing reusable alternatives such as metal straws, glass straws, that environmentally conscious customers can buy. Mm. Now, they are all steps in the right direction. But the focus on individual products should not take our attention away from more important discussions on how we bring proper waste management to the places that need it most desperately. And when I think about where they need it most desperately, compared to developing nations, residents in developing countries, especially the urban poor, are severely impacted by unsustainable managed waste. In low-income countries, some of the statistics are that 90% of the waste is often disposed in un unregulated dumps and openly burned. And these, therefore, create serious health safety and environmental consequences. So this then looks, we need to look into industry, agriculture, urban development. We need to try and think about whether businesses can commit to circular economies with minimum resource use and maximum recycling. And then within the business framework, can we create the opportunity to, for business leaders to provide direction, meaning and support the innovators to basically tackle these crises on basically sustainability. Which countries do you look at right now or, or communities within countries that you think are doing this the right way? Are, are there gold standards out there that other co communities, other countries could emulate? Well, I think it's companies and countries that have solutions to climate change already available. You know, so it's all about, there are a variety of things that we need to think about. 
We need to have companies that and countries that are trying to wean themselves off fossil fuels. We have to have individuals or corporations that are looking to employ alternatives whenever possible. Mm. You know, one of the things that I always think about is divesting from oil stocks and investing in companies that practice carbon capture and storage. If we think about climate change, we know that coal, for example, is the single biggest contributor to climate change. And that burning of coal is responsible for nearly 50% of the carbon dioxide emissions worldwide and accounts for a staggering 72% of total greenhouse gas emissions in the electricity sector. Mm, mm. So we need to think about, well, we can no longer underwrite the construction or operation of new coal-fired power plants. And this is especially true in China or India, where they contribute well over 50% of the energy mix. Yeah, yeah. We know to do with climate change. Again, it is going to, you can look at the lessons from COVID. Countries that listened and based their response on scientific advice rather than politics have performed much, much better. With climate change, we know that we cannot go above two degrees C warmer than the Industrial Revolution. And we know how much carbon we're allowed to burn to meet that threshold. It's only 565 gigatons of carbon. You know how much currently we have in reserve? No, how much we is We currently it? have around 2,800 in reserves of carbon. Wow. So you've got to keep four-fifths of this reserve in the ground. So why are companies investing in carbon? Because if I was looking at an investor, why would you invest in something where four-fifths of product can never see the light of day and should never be sold? Mm. But there are some of these things where you're just looking at raw economics provides a solution to climate change. We're talking with Professor Ben Horton, chair of the Asian School of the Environment at NTU, also the principal investigator at the Earth Observatory of Singapore. And Ben, one of the other topics that is important to you, especially this week, you've just released some new research, is that of the risk to mangroves. Uh, You did a project with scientists from NTU, Macquarie, University of Hong Kong, Rutgers, University of Wollongong. Tell us about that. And of course, those those findings are directly related to climate change and to sea level rise. Well, this study was a study, as you said, by a variety of um, international universities. And what we were trying to do was trying to provide to the community some very clear guidelines about what will happen to one of the most important natural ecosystems on our planet, and they are mangroves. Mangroves are very, very important to the planet. They provide a buffer to coastal storms. Some of the research that I did many years ago looked at the effect of mangroves in protecting coastlines of Sumatra from the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004. The villages that were behind these dense mangroves did not suffer the degree of fatalities or destruction compared to areas that had removed the mangroves. Mm. Second of all, mangroves are very, very important as a biodiversity. They're the breeding ground for many of our fish in our global oceans. 
thirdly, they provide a very important carbon stock. So mangroves basically absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and they store it through their root systems in the soil. So losing the mangroves has an effect on protection of coastal resources, has an effect on biodiversity, and also the removal would put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, contributing even more to the greenhouse gas effect. So we wanted to do a study where we could find the threshold of the rate of sea level rise that would cause those mangroves to drown. So therefore, policymakers would be fully aware of where the tipping point is. Now, how do you do this? Well, you can look at models, but one of the problems we always have with models is the data isn't available. So if you're going to say in the future it is 10 millimeters per year of sea level rise, mm -hmm. We currently don't have many places on the globe that are recording 10 millimetres where you could observe the change to happen. Mm -hmm. So instead of waiting for the future, why don't you go back through time? And we've known that the rates of sea level change has changed in the past as the Earth has come out of the glacial maximum around 20,000 years ago. And when the rates of sea level changed in the past, it drowned mangrove forests. So we worked in 78 different tropical mangrove locations around the world, and we identified by looking at sedimentary cores from beneath the ground when the mangroves were drowned. And then we correlated that with what the rate of sea level rise was. Wow. And then we, and so it's quite an innovative process, yeah. and, and the end result is very simple. The end result is that when you get to a rate of rise of sea level of six millimetres per year, the mangroves have around a 90% probability or a nine out of ten chance of drowning. Wow, and that is expected to happen under current scenarios by 2050, is that correct? Well, okay, so then here gets into let's go back to climate change. I mean, yeah. you have... In scenarios, if you do what we think we should, which is to better prepare the world for climate change, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, meet the Paris Agreement, remember all countries of the world, bar three, signed up to that agreement. If we meet that Paris Agreement, we don't cross that threshold. Mm. We don't cross that threshold, the mangroves can survive. They can contribute to biodiversity. They can protect our shorelines and, importantly, store the carbon. Conversely, if we go back to the business as usual, which existed before the COVID pandemic, that rate of rise will be reached in less than 30 years. So in 30 years, these mangroves that, that have been on our planet thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years are going to have nowhere to go and they're going to begin to drown. Mm -hmm. And we don't fully understand what the knock-on effects will be, particularly on the ocean food web. Mm. We do know that they are important for, for ecosystems, coastal ecosystems, though. Oh, very uh, much so, very yeah, much so. Yeah. Well, Ben, we uh, certainly hope that uh, people that are listening can in their own way, help to uh, to stem some of these changes through their own habits. And, of course, uh, hope, think hopefully the policymakers are listening as well that can uh, do uh, have a more effective role in making sure that uh, we don't have to talk about this as uh, something that will actually 
definitely happen, but something that has not happened. <laughs> we can get ahead of it. Uh, ben Horton, uh, Chair of the Asian School of the Environment at NTU, thank you so much for being with us today. As always, great to hear from you and, and your impassioned plea that we need to pay attention to what we're doing to our planet and make some different choices. Thank you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.